0: Welcome to the American Reformer podcast, promoting a vigorous Christian approach to the cultural challenges of our day and rooted in the rich tradition of Protestant social and political thought. Hosted by Josh Abitoy and Ben Dunson. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the American Reformer podcast. This is Josh Abitoy, executive director of American Reformer. I am joined, uh, as is often the case now, by Timon Klein, the Editor-in-Chief, and we have a guest today, uh, Ben Crenshaw. Ben is a a recently minted Cotton Mather Fellow from American Reformer. Uh, He's a very interesting writer. He just wrote a fantastic article for American Reformer that we're going to discuss today, and he does lots of other interesting things. You should follow him and check him out. Ben, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Timon and Josh. Really good to be here.
0: Excellent. Ben, why don't, why don't we kick it off? Just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and what kind of work you do.
1: Yeah, so, um, I mean, right now I'm in Hillsdale. I'm a fifth-year PhD here studying politics. Um, I came to Hillsdale in a very uh, kind of roundabout way. I was at seminary and Denver Seminary between 2011 and 2018, doing a couple of master's degrees there. Mm-hmm trying to figure out if I was going to do pastoral ministry or some kind of parachurch vocation and figured out that, um, I'm really interested in Christianity's impact in politics and the public square. So I was looking for a a PhD in, uh, you know, political theology or something like that. And I couldn't find anything. There just nothing good existed. So I decided to just kind of shoot for the stars and try a, a straight PhD in political science. And, uh, applied to a couple different places, got into Hillsdale and that's how I came to Hillsdale. And then before that I was in college at Taylor university in Indiana, where I studied history and, uh, I was born in the south, born in Texas, grew up some in Georgia, that's where my mom's from. And then, uh, lived for 20 years in Maine and new England, um, for my dad's work, we were up there for a couple decades. So I kind of from the south, but no Yankee land. Uh, spent a lot of time in the Midwest. Lived some out in Colorado for almost a decade. Um, so true, kind American. Of a, yeah, true, true American. Yeah, true. Yeah, that's right. Been all over the place. I actually haven't lived on the West Coast. So that's you know, the, the next goal maybe. But, Again, uh, true American. Yeah, that's right. But, so, so yeah, I, I go ahead. I have one quick persnickety
0: question. Um, so, so you're doing a degree in political science, or is it political philosophy?
1: Uh, technically, it's politics. That's how Hillsdale. kills it. And this is why political science is a, uh, a social scientific approach to the study of politics. Hillsdale understands politics as an ancient quote unquote science, really knowledge of humans and how humans work together socially, uh, you know, in society and political society. And so it's not a, uh, it's not something you can scientifically study through, uh, You know hypothesis and then testing and then reproduction because every political community is unique you need prudence not so much scientific kind of abstract knowledge so what hillsdale does is they have kind of three tracks any phd student will take all three you have political philosophy the conceptuality of politics then political institutions where we study america very very carefully in her history and then political leadership, which is the statesmanship program here. Those are the three things you need to have a good polit- polity, a, a good politics. Got it.
2: Very good. So, uh, Ben, Josh mentioned that you are one of the newly minted Cotton Mather Fellows and once a Cotton Mather Fellow, always like the Marines. So now you're you're in. Um, can you tell us about uh, your experience with the, the program for a little bit, do a little promotion for us here and tell us what uh, your takeaways were, the basic format of the program, and, uh, your your overall grade of the program?
1: Yeah. So I heard about this program because, um, well, I know you guys, but also uh, I know a couple of the guys. Well, I think I know all the guys who did it last year, the inaugural year, and um, a couple of them are here, here from Hillsdale and they had really good things to say about it. I saw uh, what they were reading and what they had written and thought, hey, that looks that looks really awesome. That's going to help supplement um, some things that I haven't gotten so far. And, and part of the reason for that is that the Cotton Matter Fellowship is about, really it focuses on Protestant political thought from the Reformation and also in the American context. So the way it's structured is I think we had eight or 10 weeks where every week we would read uh, um, a different uh, author from a different period. Um, and it wasn't always Protestant. I mean, we read some Aristotle, uh, Plato, um, and we even read Carl Schmidt, who's Catholic or ex-Catholic. Um, and so, and so we would do a reading and then we would have uh, a, a zoom session where the kind of the, the, the leader of the, the fellowship would give a little lecture and then we could discuss, talk about things. And we were in a chat group and so we could be talking about, about these issues throughout the week. Um, so so first of all, it was really good to get exposure to, to literature and thinkers that I hadn't had exposure to, to meet some new guys, to have a a core group where we could kind of hash out some things in a very, uh, manly and direct and, uh, a healthy way that's, uh, uh, not made possible by a modern effeminate society. Um, and then at the end, a couple of weeks ago, we had a, a, a retreat and, um, we spent about four days together, um, working through other texts that we hadn't read, getting to know each other. Cause we, you know, we'd been seeing each other on zoom all week and then you know, all summer. And then we finally got to meet each other, did some events together. So it was really great. It was, it was really, it's a really great model for, um, male friendship and bonding. That's really hard to get these days. And if you get it, you usually get it in church or your employer. And if your employer is secular, then usually, you know, I always find it's when I was back in financial industry, it's always like, well, let's go drinking this weekend or whatever. Um, And if it's church, a lot of churches aren't very healthy today. Um, And so you, you don't get very manly or very serious political and academic uh, talk or assessment or analysis about you know, how do we live our lives well together, especially in 2023 America, which seems to be, you know, falling apart every day. So it was it was a really great fellowship. Highly recommend it in terms of structure, leadership. Uh, the pace of reading and discussion was very reasonable. If you've got a full-time job and family, you can easily do it. Um, really great camaraderie. You meet some guys, be future opportunities. And, he, and I was a writing fellow, so I got to write, which is, where this article that I wrote for American Reformer came from. Um, so overall, really great program, encourage other young Protestants to uh, check it out next year.
2: Excellent. And we wanna to get to the, uh, the the article very quickly here, but one thing, just you're, you're finishing up your PhD, Ben, at Hillsdale, so PhD students deserve the chance or they'll take it by force to talk about their topic. So very briefly, if I'm not mistaken, I always forget, but you're, you're doing it on Jonathan Mitchell, is that right? Jonathan Mayhew. Mayhew. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Different, yeah, different so so I'm, tell us about briefly about Mayhew and his, his significance.
1: Yeah. So Mayhew was the pastor of uh, the West Church in Boston from 1747 to 1766. He died right after the Stamp Act crisis ended in 1765, but before national independence a decade later in 1776. But he was a prominent pastor and a wealthy and prominent church in Boston. And in Boston, of course, was the hub of the revolution. Um, and he was preaching and teaching on political matters. So he's got a bunch of political sermons. His most famous was his 1750 sermon on uh, unlimited submission to the higher authorities, where he was arguing against um, a certain kind of ecclesiastical Anglican view of complete and total passive submission to whatever government does, even if it's tyrannical, and that the Bible teaches this. And so he outlines kind of the right to political revolution in the case or in the situation of tyranny and unjust law. And Mayhew had a lot more other things to say about government and civil society and the nature of man. So my dissertation is basically extracting his political philosophy from his political sermons. Um, and so it's kind of, it's not specifically revolutionary and constitutional America, but it's pre revolutionary America and all the, the major ideas are being formulated at that time um drawing on the colonial heritage. So
2: that's and he and he would be um, if I'm not mistaken, he's he's cited later by people like John Adams and and people like that, is he not? Oh yeah.
1: He's cited by a lot yeah. a lot of people James Otis, John Adams, um uh Robert Livingston, um, you know, you you could go on and on there was quite a uh, an influential maybe not i mean his influence wasn't all through up and down the eastern coast or corridor, but uh he influenced a very um important number of people in the new england area um and he was he was regularly cited by um top scholars throughout the 19th century as being the father of religious and civil liberty in america and of course he's forgotten about now and he he was a fourth-generation Puritan. His father had been a, a missionary to the praying Indians on Martha's Vineyard, so he's got that Puritan heritage. Um, so he's a really interesting guy to study.
2: Excellent, excellent. Well, we'll look forward to uh, to that being published um, somewhere interesting one day, and uh, so that every, you know, imagine that uh, pastors educated Orthodox ones influencing uh, the the scope and trajectory of American history. Crazy. Um, okay, Josh, you want to you want to take us into the uh, this article that Ben has written for us, which is, I think, I described as a tour de force, and I will describe it so again.
0: Yeah, Ben, why don't we just kick it off? Why don't you just lay out your basic thesis here briefly for those who haven't had a chance to read the article yet?
1: Okay, so my basic thesis is responding to, um, you know, those who that have accused or charged. Um, national conservatives or any anybody on the new right who's for nationalism new American nationalism with being authoritarians you know the new fascists the Christo fascists the authoritarians the despotic impulses and so forth and this charge comes from both the right and the left so uh, national I think national conservatism began in 2016 or 17, right after Trump, um, and they've had, I think, three NatCons. Is that right? Uh, three meetings. In, yeah, they've had had three stateside. Yeah. I think some others, others Right. And so uh, it's the national conservatism is a movement, um, it's kind of centered around the work of Yoram Hazzoni. has uh, has been attacked by all sides as being un-American. Uh, as you know, from the left, they, they say, uh, we're religious authoritarians and uh, we want to undo civil rights progress and racial progress and LGBTQ justice. Uh, this is kind of, we want to return America to some kind of pre-liberal barbarous, barbaristic state or something like that. And uh, on the right, uh, the, the criticism is that nationalists are just for big government. They want regulation and intervention in the free market Uh, They want economic planning. This is kind of a return of socialism and Marxism. And you've abandoned the principles of small government, private liberty, the market. You've rejected the work of Reagan and Thatcher and Bush. And so this this isn't true conservatism. This is just uh, conservatives that are rebelling against the prior conservative order who are kind of LARPing or uh, wishing to be leftists and um, communists or something like that. So, so the, the attack is against national conservatives coming from the, the right and the left saying that we're authoritarian.
0: Got it. They, I, I, and just another like sort of preferatory matter to define our terms before we dig in. But, but the term nationalism, um, I think that some resistance to the adoption of this term is attributable to the fact that, that nationalism has historically been perceived as like this European phenomenon. Right, like like Germany had nationalism under, um, you know, in the late 19th century in its unification, Italy had nationalism. It, it, it's, it, it's it has stood, you know, before now for sort of uh, both secularizing and centralizing um, functions in governments, but but um, it doesn't necessarily mean this. So, can you talk us through a little bit how you know when you talk about nationalism in this context? What does that term stand for?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, lots of books have been written on the issue of nationalism, um, and what I'm doing in this article is it, is I'm recovering a pre-nineteenth and twentieth century form of American nationalism. And if you if we want to debate it, I mean, I would say that um, at least in the Protestant experience um, in the Western world, you know, nationalism kind of got its kickstart under Henry VIII when he Um, broke away from the Catholic church and challenged on the basis of kind of a a national people and a national power challenged the political and religious fusion of the Catholic church in Europe. Um, So nationalism isn't, it doesn't just emerge out of some uh, Bismarckian German um, bureaucratic experiment in the late 19th century that tried to uh, actualize some hegelian world state or something like that Uh, it goes back a long time before that and um, the american experience of nationalism uh, relies upon really a basically an understanding of uh, natural law politics applied to the international sphere in which nations when they're created by um a people coming together um they the, the resulting entity is what they call a quote-unquote moral person, um, and we could, you know, if you want to get into like a really interesting topic, you could, uh, you could debate political ontology: what is this moral person? But the nation itself was viewed as having kind of moral personhood under the law of law of nations, which is the law of nature applied to the international sphere. So it's actually a very, um, it, it's a very Christian, it's a very Protestant way of understanding nations and how they're supposed to relate to each other under some kind of natural and divine law. And that mirrors how, um, you know, nations themselves within their domestic polity are supposed to organize themselves properly under natural and divine law. Um, so that's that's more of what I'm getting at with nationalism. And of course, you know, the, the history of the 20th century has so polluted uh, the public understanding and discourse on nationalism that it's very difficult to kind of dislodge that negativity in the public mind and open people's, you know, willingness to be able to conceive of a kind of nationalism that isn't, um, isn't some kind of fascist or Nazism. Um, yeah, that's not abusive and and inherently destructive of, you know, human life and liberty and, um, the good ends for which we were created.
2: Ben, one of the um, the early sections, which I was glad you began with this, because I think in a, a lot of discussion, not just around the nationalism question, but politics generally as it's reemerged, um, spurred on by the new right, I think, but just also the, the political moment, is people usually, especially conservatives, jump right to the form, the form or the structure um, the division of labor between, you know, branches of government as we'd now call them, but you begin with its with government's ends, um, sort of a teleological approach, which which fits very nicely with some things I've written before and something I'm actually working on now. So I was glad to see you began there. So you obviously are channeling the late 18th century, our our founders, the founding generation. Although, uh, again, happily, you don't stick to just the the big five. You bring up people like uh, Theophilus Parsons. And people like this. So, what's the um, you know summarize this sort of point for us of what are the what are the ends of government under the original constitutional order? What's the purpose um, of it prior to even getting to the the structure of the government itself?
1: Yeah. So, <clears throat> part of the reason I did this is because the argument from the the right, um, say um, neoconservatives or social conservatives, um, libertarian economic libertarians against nationalism is that it is a violation of the ends of American government and those ends are to strictly protect natural rights. These natural rights are pre-political, they're natural. And so because they exist before the creation of, of the body politic or civil government itself um, and the people delegate only a portion of their natural rights to government to exercise on their behalf, And then they retain the rest of those natural rights um, in society. That therefore, you know, any kind of national power given over to, um, you know, the federal government is going to be in violation of this basic outline of American political thought. So I don't deny that there's a lot of talk about, you know, natural rights and liberties in the American founding. It's all throughout the literature. We shouldn't we shouldn't deny that, and denying it is kind of been one problem among the scholarship, um, from those who dislike it. But what I wanted to do is put it into larger context. And so my argument was that when you read deeply in 18th century, uh, primary sources, you find that they talk about like a lot of different ends of government. So the first is just to secure the existence of the body politic itself. This is basic foreign policy. And this, you know, they were thinking in terms of European powers, the Spanish or the, or the French Uh, you know, invading or not so much invading, but just having colonial outposts in Quebec or Florida or where not, uh, you know, that could threaten America's viability. Today, it's more actually a matter of immigration is a threat to the body politic. And it has been um, for, you know, 50 plus years now. So the first purpose, of course, is just kind of the, the very elemental aspect of politics itself. You must be willing to preserve yourself, your people, your life. Um, So self-preservation. And then uh, you do have these natural rights, both alienable and inalienable. Um, And these include like life, liberty, conscience, worship, religion, association to acquire, possess, and protect property and so forth. Um, Another end of government, Madison talks about this in Federalist 51 is justice and justice is the virtue that properly orders man toward his fellow man. And so yes this involves both rights and duties. It involves societal goods. Um and then of course the founders also talk about happiness being uh the end of government. And this is actually um what what I would call like the highest end. So there's both kind of the immediate lower ends of just mere life and then happiness is the highest end of government within the scope of the the founding. And this is the happiness of the people um, and not just an individual happiness, although they often thought that these would go together. So if your whole people were happy, you would be happy too. Um, And, uh, you know, and happiness was not some kind of subjective thing where you get to decide, well, you know, a happy life for me is being able to club my neighbor and take their car and then, you know, pimp this girl I picked up yesterday like that's what happiness is for me it's like no happiness has a substantive uh meaning there and this is where i get to this concept of the common good or the public good the public wheel um the good the general good the good of all uh these were you know this is kind of collectively a way of talking about all of these things together um and probably the best place to go to see this. I mean, you could go, the best place to go is the state constitutions. And there it's just Mm -hmm. everywhere. You know, it's actually throughout, if you, if you start reading primary source documents from this time period and you look for every mention of the public good or the common good, you'll find it. It just starts popping out at you. In fact, I know we've talked about this before Timon. but, uh, the declaration of independence, what's the Mm -hmm. first, the first grievance is that the, uh, The king has violated laws made by the colonists for their public good um and so yeah you in the preamble you have government is instituted for the rights the natural rights of the people but there's also right there immediately is the public good so if you go to say like massachusetts constitution in 1780 written by finally authored by uh, john adams which i think is i have read and i agree with the assessment that this is probably one of the most beautiful and profound written constitutions ever produced mm-hmm. he says that the common good includes protection safety prosperity and happiness and that protection is kind of that security of the bo- the body politic the the uh, foreign policy safety is the security in domestic areas against you know violence from your neighbor which of course if you uh if you just look in the news today, you'll find that everywhere. In fact, I was at a lecture last night with Victor Davis Hanson talking about California and uh, he was relaying some some of the problems California is having with domestic violence and security. Uh, and then prosperity is basic, you know, protection of property and industri- industriousness, compensation for labor. And then happiness is the, uh, you know, the, the moral life, uh, religious duties, friendship and concord. And so some of those, in in some ways, um, less, less tangible uh, goods that all men absolutely need and we're seeking for in terms of transcendence. So what I was trying to do with the ends of government was to push regular conservatives beyond just kind of this bare talk of rights, usually conceived of in a very individualistic and selfish way to say, actually, the founders talked about a whole lot of things being the end of government. We have to put these all together. Mm-hmm. And if you if you divorce, say, natural rights from the common good, what you get are just moral powers, subjectively defined, weaponized, distorted, corrupted, without some basic human good toward which society toward, – towards which these these uh, natural rights point in which society is trying to achieve collectively. So mm-hmm. – that was the point of this section: was to expand our conceptuality of the ends of government, and, and part of this is yes, read the Declaration of Independence, but there's a whole lot of other public documents you have to read. One of the problems in the professional literature is, a, you know, a over-reliance upon the Declaration's preamble, as like yeah, some the, people even write whole books just on that. <laughs> yes, and we shouldn't <laughs> deny it, but I mean, a it was it was The draft was first written by Jefferson, but then it went to the Committee of Five and then it went to the entire Mm -hmm. Continental Congress and they all made changes and they all contributed to it. So it's not just a matter or a product of Jefferson's, you know, rationalist, liberal, quasi-ideist beliefs. Um, But it was actually, and he even said this, it was meant to be a statement of uh, harmonizing the sentiments of the American people of the time. So it's a brief statement. But then you can go to a lot of other documents that flesh out all of the different elements of it and how it works together. And that's what I was trying to do in that right. section.
2: Yeah, I think that's I mean, that's much, much needed. As, as you know, Ben, we, we talk about this kind of stuff all the time. I mean, even when the um, you know, I'm, I'm generally as much as I hate on Jefferson, the defender of the declaration. Uh, for what it actually is, the document is. And, and I think the the stuff at the beginning in the preamble that everyone wants to um, use as an ultimate guide to politics is actually not saying all that much. It's very preliminary. It's very standard for philosophical treatises on government at the time. And it also needs to be conditioned by uh, the tradition. Um, you know, So when we talk about equality, um, even if you're going to use Locke, I mean, Locke is not an absolute universal... E- egalitarian he's speaking in you know some basic um certainly not politically he's speaking you know basically metaphysically equality between men but that doesn't mean politically everyone's equal all the time um, but then you also look at things. We were talking about security, and this came to mind. One of the grievances in the Declaration, as you know, is actually a complaint about immigration. In this case, um, the King is not allowing the colonists to bring people that they would they think would be fitting and beneficial to their colonies um, overseas. They're they're disallowing that, and you contrast that with a I I was just reading a sermon not too long ago from Cotton Mather in the early 18th century, where he's claiming that you know one of the fears or one of the designs of of the uh government the british government at the time prior to the the revolution of 89 was that they were going to flood the colonies with with a bunch of irish right to disrupt it with catholicism so so immigration is and you have the same thing with the quebec act right that's a big fear so immigration even then is is a similar security uh concern um so very applicable to today um but again, I think this is needed, you know, a broader survey of the sources um, to, to really find out what uh, the ideals and principles of government were at the time is, is um, extremely needed and would do well, to, people do well to condition their reading of the more popular uh, documents by those, um, you know, those Less less visited sources, I think. Um, yes. But again, they're all they're all available. People just seem to. Uh, it's almost a willful blindness at, at this point. It's it's very frustrating. But you're doing doing much here to introduce people to that. Um, I, we could say more on that. But the but the very next section of your article, I I thought might even be more beneficial in terms of maybe not historical method, which that last section was, but the next section that's on federalism is something. Um, that was equally welcome. Just because in this nationalist, nationalism discussion, especially online, there's an immediate assumption that once you start talking about nationalism, you have somehow subverted, invariably subverted the American structure of federalism and dual sovereignty. So we we're talking about the ends now; we get the structure, um, as if we would we would throw you know everything out in order to accomplish some sort of nationalist nationalist consciousness um, and national interests that would be unlimited contrary to the preamble of the federal constitution and to the subversion of states you know query whether we even have state sovereignty at this point but um, no matter that's why you know you have some of our friends like like josh dawes you know saying well let's call it christian federalism it's like well any nationalism in america would necessarily conform to uh, the, the pre-existing structure that the people are conditioned to uh, to enjoy. So, uh, but talk about this this section a bit on your your argument.
1: Yeah, sure. So, yes, exactly. The the issue is again the charge um, from anti-nationalists that yeah nationalism is going to destroy the long tradition of local self-government in America. It's going to lead to a consolidation of political power around the you know the power centers in america whether it's the dc circuit or the the uh coastal quarters or urban centers um and this will just actually make everything worse so what are you conservatives doing what are you nationalist conservatives doing you're just going to make the problem worse so i i had a, uh brought up this argument um in a, in a prior piece on uh on, on nationalism um but I tried to flush it out a little bit more here. And it, it's basically, it gets to the very, you know, before you get to a lot of the uh, the improved science of politics, which is what the, how the founders talked about, like separation of powers and checks and balances and a bicameral legislature and representation and extended sphere and an independent judiciary, these elements that they were uh, improving um, politics with. Before you even get to that, you have the, this is almost like more foundational than, than that, in terms of how are you going to put together um, 13 independent colonies, each with their own government, their own civil government and people and way of life and so forth, into a national whole. And there are basically three options. The first option is what they tried under the Articles of Confederation, um, which, by the way, very important to understand, the Articles of Confederation and the Declaration of Independence were written at the same time these were two parts of the national project of independence. So when you talk about the national constitution, like large constitution, you actually have to include the declaration. The declaration almost serves itself as a preamble to the constitution. That's another argument and it has profound implications. Um, I'll save that for another time, but, under the Articles of Confederation, what they did was they tried the um, Montesquieu's argument in the spirit of the laws um, that you should, you can put together a league of independent republics to create a confederation. Um, And this confederation hangs, it goes together and it hangs on these mutual agreement and promises and goodwill by these independent states you know, say in Switzerland, independent cantons or something like that. Um, And they all have a common end together and common means by which, say, to have, you know, to protect themselves from invaders. And there's going to be um, some kind of agreement of industry and trade and sharing of, um, you know, raw materials or something like that. That was Montesquieu's idea. Uh, They tried to implement that in the articles. It didn't work because each state you know, of course, they're, they're implementing the Articles of Confederation during a, a war with the, lar- the lar- largest, and most powerful empire uh, that really the world had seen since, you know, maybe the Mongols or the Roman. I mean, the British Empire, like what, what were the American colonists doing going to war against the British? So the problem was that each state under the Articles was looking after, out for itself. And it wasn't supplying the, the requisite tax monies or the men to fund the Continental Army. And we almost lost the war because of this. So there was, there was a lot of an, independence and anarchy, and they weren't working together, and they weren't keeping their promises. So that's what the Constitution tried to fix, was some of the defects from the Articles. Now, on the other side, before I get to what the Constitution did, you had the ex- other extreme. Instead of a League of Independent Republics, you have total consolidation of all the states into a single mass. This is almost like mass democracy or mass nationalism or something like that. The Federalists and the Anti-Federalists utterly rejected that um, position. They did not want to meld or destroy the local self-government and the local flavor and kind of like put it all under one hat in the national government. Instead, they tried to split the two and they created what, what some have called a partial consolidation where The common, uh, you know, you could say, I think you've made this point elsewhere, Timon, that the general, the general uh, welfare is actually the common good at the national level. So this includes Mm -hmm. foreign policy and common weights and measures and treaties and, you know, raising a military, some of these great and national common national interests that all the states had together. These were housed under the Constitution. This was the responsibility of the. The national government. But then the states retained all of their local, in particular, domestic um, powers. And so they were independent republics in terms of those domestic powers. And that really included, uh, you know, specifically moral and religious legislation and regulation, Um, you know, regulating speech and, you know, raising your own militia, um, protecting property, and, and all these kinds of things. So this was a, you know, American, the, the national constitution split sovereignty between the states and the national powers. And uh, they affected this by having conventions of the people. So the people elected their own state governments and their legislatures represented them. And then they had national conventions of the people by which they approved or, you know, they debated and then ratified and approved the constitution. So the, the sovereignty came from the people It was kind of this dual you know madison calls it a dual sovereignty i really call it a dual delegation of the Mm -hmm. people's will some to the to the national or yeah to the national government and others to the state governments so so my argument here is that we've actually that original pattern has been attacked usurped it's collapsed it's been obliterated and actually what we have today the problem we have we're facing is total consolidation that extreme that all the founders rejected. And that's because uh, partly the you know revolution in politics under the progressives, in which they introduced the fourth branch, the administrative branch, um, and then you have Congress delegating their powers to unelected administrative bureaucracies that, that run things. Um, and you also have the problem of, through the uh, 14th Amendment in, in 1868, uh, you had the incorporation of the Bill of Rights uh, to the states, meaning that um, the states were basically stripped of those domestic police powers that I had mentioned, and so the states aren't really able to now govern effectively the way they were originally set up to do. Which is why what Desantis is doing is kind of a um, a shadow of what once was. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. He could do a whole lot more and we should do a whole lot more. Um, but we have the, the problem we're facing um, is this total consolidation. And if you actually to restore the original national structure, you would have more federalism. You'd have a return to that local self-government. And, and finally, I'll say in this, the point here is, you know, America in 1776 was about 2.1 million people. Today, we're 330 million people. 50 million of which are either illegal immigrants or children of illegal immigrants. We are no longer one people. And we're not going to be able to meld all of the crazy differences, the really incompatible understandings of life and humanity and good and evil into one into one union anymore. That's, I think that project's over. So the goal here in reviving nationalism by and reviving federalism is to be able to give space for a subgroup to carve out <laughs> a life for themselves that is good and be able to say we have the right to self-government in florida or in texas or in tennessee or wherever it may be and we can still have a good life here even if california wants to fall off into the pacific ocean and go crazy
0: so ben that was a that was a wonderful screed it just warmed my heart incredibly um, the the I mean, I guess the the really optimistic hope or scenario is what you might call reinvigorated federalism, but essentially states start to aggrandize uh, sovereignty from the federal government. They get more assertive, uh, more decisive. They start taking back political decisions that used to be theirs and really properly are theirs. Um, what, how do you how do you you know weight the likelihood of that relative to you know, alternative ways that the situation could resolve. In other words, you know, uh, tyrannical overpreening federal government, you know, President Newsom in 2024 with solid majorities in two houses, um, sending the
1: national guard in
0: <laughs> to, 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 independent states. How, how do you see this playing out? What, you know,
1: handicap it for us. Well, let me look into my crystal, crystal ball here, Josh. Yes. And I'll, yes. yeah. um, I, it's, it's really hard to know. I think it's probably 50, 50 split. I think that what DeSantis has done in Florida, um, has, you know, um, given people at least the imagination, Oh, life could actually be good. And I, I, I don't have to let, um, you know, you know, drag Queens twerk at my local library or, uh, you know, I don't have to just allow my car to be smashed and grabbed or, um, or you know whatever be assaulted when i'm walking down the street or trans my kids at public school like this doesn't have to be um and so i so i do i i am hopeful i mean the, the part of the hope i have is that america is a big place i mean this is a huge like physical landmass. is huge you still go like recently i drove through kansas it was just nothing forever and we went up to the up the upper peninsula a couple years ago and again it was just like forest after forest after so america's a big big place and it would take a massive effort by an absolutely crazed bloodthirsty you know martial law inclined tyranny to uh you know to try to absolutely crush out all dissent now it may you know with something like mimicking China's social credit system, you can do it. You could do it with propaganda and media and technology on your side. You know, there's subtle ways to do this, but the, the diversity, you know, people's uh, fleeing to places like Florida, um, DeSantis putting pressure on someone like Greg Abbott, who's really no, he's no conservative. Um, you know, he, he's kind of like, Oh, you know, the people want this, there's a hunger for it. And I think we see with, you know, the, uh, 75, 80 million people who voted for Trump in 2020 that there's a hunger for it among the people too. So I do, I do have hope for that. Um, I think there's always hope against tyranny because people don't like to be ruled by tyrants. They just don't like it. you, you know Machiavelli's right about this. He advises his the prince um, and his and his prince you know if you if you if you take people's property and you take their wives and you kill them, They're not going to like you very much, and they're going to they're going to kill you. So you probably ought not to do that. Um, So you know, if if Newsom, God forbid, he's elected in twenty four, and he tries to turn America uh, into California, you know, he might have a rude awakening. So I do have some some hope there. Whether or not we can uh, have sane government at the state levels, Um, I don't know. We'll we'll have to see. So. There's a fascinating test room.
0: case developing out of Texas, actually, just today. Um, you know, Texas, uh, Abbott's been doing a little bit more on the border uh, as a result of a lot of pressure. It, it's hilarious. You know, every day we have about 10 or 15,000 people cross the border into Texas. Jeez. And it's like one day's worth of illegal immigrants land in Manhattan, and it's a national emergency. Much less Martha's Vineyard. Yeah, right. We deal with that that volume every single day. And so finally, like, took way too long. He's not doing enough even yet. But, you know, Abbott started doing some stuff. So he put, like, floating barriers in the Rio Grande to, like, make it harder to cross. He was ordered this morning by a federal district judge here in Texas to remove the barriers from the Rio Grande. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Now, you know, know, hopefully... Actually, hopefully that gets right up to the Fifth Circuit and enjoined very quickly. But in the interim, um, you know, wait, is he going to obey that? I don't know. I mean, I, I was I tweeted out this morning, but um, Scalia, in his descent to a, a you know U.S. v. Arizona ten years back, he he literally said. Actually, I'll, I'll read this. Um, he said. Arizona has the inherent power to exclude persons from its territory, subject only to those limits, limitations expressed in the constitution or constitutionally imposed by Congress. The power to exclude is long being recognized as inherent in sovereignty. Like Mm -hmm. as Americans, like we, we have this, um, I mean, some of us here, maybe that the states are dual sovereigns, but that seems to sort of go in one ear and out the other, And people don't, I mean, especially state governments, they don't actually sit down and think, I'm a sovereign, you know, and I have, Mm -hmm. like, as such, I have all those powers that tend to come with sovereignty. And, uh, you know, and and so, yeah, it's, it's fascinating, like, there's, there's, there's all these eminently reasonable positions that you can take as a governor, in terms of protecting your police powers, and maybe even engaging in a little bit of departmentalism, right? And, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of sovereignty contests relative to the federal government pushing the envelope getting aggressive um and so hopefully hopefully some of that happens i mean in, in i mean in this case it's not even that he cares uh it's more just that he would be responding to the political pressure of his voters
1: yeah you're, you're right josh and you know this is actually what this is what the founders wanted in a sense they thought that ambition would counter ambition and what mm-hmm. happens is that republicans don't have any ambition where you know the permanent party of losers, where we've been totally conquered and domesticated. And we need to have a little ambition and, you know, have, you know, Abbott or DeSantis, you know, flex their rightful sovereignty under the constitution. Now, this is, of course, this gets into the whole question of nullification and the constitutionality of that. And I think that, uh, you know, there is a, a place for nullification at the state level, but part of the problem is you would have to challenge The whole concept of incorporation because you what you would want to do is you would want to assert state nullification on the basis of the state's right to domestic sovereignty over their domestic affairs the people who come into their across their border uh moral and religious legislation and that's been that's been bulldozed by the national government over the past century so you'd have you'd be digging all that up but you know at some point it has it has to be addressed
2: one well, actually, I, think, I mean, I think that's, that's all right, of course. One, one argument I've raised elsewhere, you know, two is that if you bulldoze that, the state sovereignty on this indeed duty at this level, I think it's, you know Stephen Wolf points out all the time that state governors do not have their power, um, you know, mediated through federal power. so it therefore it's directly a, appointed by God, right? You need to consider yourself that way as a true magistrate. They're actually not lesser magistrates mm. in that sense. So but the but the point I've made elsewhere is that you know the one of the main anti-federalist contentions um, during 1787 is that a national legislature that would have domestic oversight, right, which they would never sign on to, even the Federalists because it's exactly the, the issue that was raised by the colonies against the home government in britain is that they can the the local concerns and even the conditions of those people are not cognizable at that great yep. of a distance yeah so you so where we've bulldozed the state sovereignty we it's no surprise that a national legislature is completely feeble um in trying to legislate for a country this big in terms of land mass and then also in terms of the population you noted and they would have even thought they were incapable of the same with only two million people running around that were basically all 90 uh you know protestant from the same <laughs> few counties yeah. in english yes. right so like all the same people come almost entirely we call it today entirely homogenous um so it's just, it's, it's it shows you how dysfunctional the government is, where we've either willingly or unwillingly ceded these functions to a national legislature. that actually can't do the job there that's being mm-hmm. demanded of them. So it's improper there. But one thing I wanted to raise uh, going back a few minutes is, you know, there's all this, uh, of course, Caesarism talk, which much of, much of us have been roped into. On the one hand, though, you could say a potential national future would be a sort of uh, what we might call a reverse Lincoln, where in order to restore order, um, you take a more muscular and aggressive executive posture, certainly unitary executive posture, but for this, in this case, to restore this federalism rather than to consolidate in certain constitutional measures. Um, and then another option, though, at the other end. And would be actually a return to an Articles of Confederation situation where the national status is greatly reduced and even weakened on the global stage because of internal conflict. But you come up with a settlement that's sort of a balkanized or regionalist settlement where there's much less cooperation. I mean, you you know this, Ben, but even even after '87, there were multiple instances where certain states started deciding actually maybe this was a bad idea we maybe should secede as a region um so something like that which would not be on the one hand you know the the terrible terrible caesarism everyone's afraid of and even talking about it is bad on the other hand it wouldn't be complete um dissolving of of the entire nation but would just look like a more primitive version of the same
1: yeah no i i think you know it's good observation or good kind of gaming out the possibilities um, and part of the talk with Caesarism of course is our conception of Caesar uh, in which Caesar are we talking about Julius Caesar or Caesar Augustus um, and you know if if you study somebody like Augustus you'll find that he actually wielded power in an incredibly magnanimous way um, and he left a lot of local rule to the provinces and he used the power the, ro- the power of the Roman Empire mostly in a military way to squash rebellion um, and he relied less upon like raw power than his what, what's known as octor, octoritas or authority kind of this authority that comes uh, from his greatness of character he was the princeps the, the first citizen so our conception of caesarism uh you know doesn't have to be a tyrant um, and it, I think either one of those scenarios is possible. Of course, you could have the Gavin Newsom who comes along and is this blue Caesar that just wants to submit everybody under his thumb. Um, and the danger, of course, in the second scenario you brought up, Time, and of a, um, more of a return to a Confederate league is if you have, say, like a California and a Texas who are no longer have a you know, kind of common ends under a national head, do you, how long before you have civil war? How long before you have a nation of California fighting against a nation of, of Texas, or even if it's not a hot civil war, some kind of very intense economic, uh, you know, winner-take-all contest of dominion um, or something? So you know, there, you know, out of the firing pan of the fire, you know, like there's no, you're between a rock and a hard place here. There's, I'm not sure there's a really a good satisfactory answer um i prefer some kind of local local federalism with still a national um some kind of national power but at this point like we've gone so far toward the level of consolidation that we should almost like err toward the level of uh you know total independence by the states in a confederation or order to try to bring things back and mm-hmm. even then you probably wouldn't come back to the the original constitutional arrangement um so so yeah. so yeah, it's possible.
2: Yeah, it's always a funny thing with the, when the Caesarism stuff is discussed. Is historically, you know, the, the monarch is supposed to be a check against the oligarchy on behalf of the people, and everyone seems to agree that the oligarchy is the problem in our current scenario. But no one wants to face the classical solution to that in, in terms of cycles of regimes, um, which which is just interesting. But enough on on Caesar. Josh, any um any parting thoughts on this front?
0: Uh, no, I, you know, just be careful, Ben. As we all know, it's very bad and dangerous to even talk descriptively about what might happen in the future, let alone, uh, you know, actually uh, advocate for any particular direction. Um, but I think my views on what the range of what's possible are, are known. Uh, so, um, you know, and, and, and <laughs> you know, seriously, I mean, People say like, oh, this is childish to talk about a Protestant Franco or a Caesar or anything. I I would sort of, I would flip that on people and say, you know, no, it's, 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 there is a sober minded realism to acknowledging the range of potential outcomes in politics. And, you know, uh, the, the bulk of human history has been marked by violent political change in quick succession. We've had a remarkably stable and good political order in this country, even despite some 20th century distortions. But like, we're hubristic and naive if we think that the status quo must necessarily continue as it has. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I, uh, a lot more to say on this topic, probably for another time. But, um, when, And
2: something I'd, I'd add too, I mean, this goes back to Ben's original section, and, and there's more to Ben's article, so everyone should go go read it. Um, at Americanreformer.org, but the, you know, a thing on a teleological or ends-based approach to politics. I was just reading Sam Adams in a letter the other day, um, and Sam Adams, as you know, Ben and you may know, Josh is my favorite founder uh, who mm-hmm. gets no no credit, but he's he's talking about an issue they had in I think 1768 or 69, where Governor Bernard had unilaterally removed the General Court to Cambridge from Boston. For, for seemingly no particular reason. And so the question is, is he allowed to do this? And there's a clause in there um, in a statute at the time that says, yes, he is able to do this. He can remove for the public good, can remove the location of the, of the general court wherever he wants. And um, so Sam Adams says, well, yes, of course he's allowed to do this if it's for the public good, if it's not for the public good, he's not allowed to do it. And people today would say, well, what, what is the check on that power? Like, how do you figure this out? If it Because we need something much more formulaic and proceduralist, right? That outlines in a sort of algorithmic way, when and where you can do this, Um, these prerogatives, how can they be governed? And Adams is just directing you to the point that it takes an ends-based teleological approach to politics in the moment with prudence to determine the good and wrong of most actions. But if you Mm -hmm. remove all prerogative, you can't actually govern. And it seems to me that conservatives today are sort of paralyzed by that conundrum that used to be much more natural to astute political thinkers. And that's why we can't actually have the ambition you're talking about. Uh, because we're in a state of paralysis that's been induced m- much by, by 20th century revisionism. Um,
1: but, but is self-induced largely. Yes. And the interesting thing on that is that, you know, the left the Democrats have not allowed proceduralism to get in their way of, uh, <laughs> kind of <laughs> actualizing their own understanding of the common good. Um, yes. so, so we could do it if we had the will, we just don't have the political will. Um, and that maybe, and we, we need new leaders. Um, I think the people are ready for it. Um, and you know, it's, we, we're going to have to fight ugly and that's better than dying. So <laughs> that's a great quote to end on. I think yeah, that's that we'll fighting get,
0: ugly is better than dying. We should say nothing uh, else. Otherwise we're going to ruin that mic drop moment. Um, that, ben, that might be the title of the podcast. I'm not sure. Yes. Fighting ugly <laughs> is better than dying. Uh, Ben, Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for your participation as a fellow this year. It's been a, been a pleasure getting to know you and giving a platform to your work. It's fantastic. Everybody should be reading you. Um, and uh, you're on Twitter. You can give a quick shout out for your handle and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, I'm at uh, my my handle is just at Ben R Crenshaw, all one word.
0: Got it everybody needs to be following you. And then someday, if you publish your dissertation, buying your book uh, and uh, to, to the audience, um, thank you so much for joining us. Um, if you like the show, as always, go leave us a review, leave us a rating, subscribe. That really helps um, our show to grow, uh, get more reach and, and get out into the algorithm. And uh, as always, uh, American Reformer, subsists entirely off of generous donations from listeners just like you. If you like our content, if you want to see more of it, please consider supporting us today. You can go to our website at AmericanReformer.org and make a donation there. It's tax deductible. We're a 501c3. You can also find us on on Twitter uh, at amreformer. That's amreformer is our handle. Uh, Thanks again. Until next time, God bless. Thank you for listening to the American Reformer podcast. Make sure to visit us online at americanreformer.org. That's americanreformer.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at amreformer.